Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics, and I am joined by a number of folks. Uh, so let's just uh, introduce uh, the lineup. Uh, we got the regulars, the the uh, my two co-hosts, Ryan Sweet and Chris Dorides. Hi, guys. Mark. Hey, Mark. I'm proud of Chris. He's in, in, he's getting used to this casual look now. Oh, I wore a uh, black T-shirt. For there in honor go. of a Black Friday here. So yeah. There you go. Black Friday. Oh, you're talking about the stock market. Yeah. Well, oh, markets goodness. in general, right? Yeah, <laughs> markets in general. We got to come back to that for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, he does look a little casual. Uh, he, no, but no matter what Chris wears, he looks good. Have you noticed that, Ryan? Yeah. He's, he, he, he dresses and tries to be, he wants to be the first economist on the cover of GQ. It, wow. Is that a possibility? I, I, you know, I doubt it, but you know, is always GQ possible. still a magazine? Mark, have, have you been so, on there already? Oh, oh actually, I got a great story. I got oh, a great I story. Knew it. <laughs> I got a great story. I got, you let story let me introduce the other two guests, okay? Before I, I tell you the story, because uh, you want you absolutely will not believe it if you're watching this on YouTube and you see my hairline, but I'm going to tell you anyway. We got uh, Janice, Janice Stanton. Janice is uh, with uh, Cushman Wakefield. Good to have you, Janice. Good to be here, Mark. And, and Janice and I. I think we go back. I'm not going to even say how many years. I think we were one of your first clients and we take full credit for recognizing the brilliance early on. Right. So. You know, it was, that was a great, I can't remember what the project was, but I just remember it, it was a great project. I don't know. I have this warm, fuzzy feeling about this project I did with you. What, was it a good project? I can't remember. Yeah, it was yeah. risk adjusted cap rates with oh, Susan Wachter yes. and, you yes. know, like professors and real estate and. Yeah, with Susan Walker, of course, who's a well-known real estate professor at Wharton, University of Pennsylvania, and a good friend, too. I don't think we've gotten her on the podcast, but we definitely should get her on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, oh, that was my first uh, cross uh, first time I crossed paths with Susan, too, I think, in that project. That was that was interesting. Was yeah. yeah. And was Mark, really Mark, was your reaction, what? How do you guys measure cap rates? Really? Yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> Something to that effect, I think. Yeah, uh, I was like, why is the data so bad? <laughs> yeah, why, why, what's going on there? And uh, of course, that you heard the voice of Victor Kal Kalanog. Uh, Victor, how are you? Good, Mark. Thanks for having me today. And actually, uh, I'll have to say, Victor, you look better than Chris. I, I don't know what you guys uh, think, but well, man, he is. He looks really sharp. sharp. Yeah, uh, I was going to go for the cover of Muscle and Fitness, but that would mean... <laughs> <laughs> Less clothes, I think, than we yeah. we would allow. Okay, no. let's not go there. Let's, let's not. Go there. No, <laughs> let's not go there. Let's not go. Oh, uh, I should. The obvious. Uh, we, Janice and Victor are uh, uh, experts in the commercial real estate uh, world, uh, and we're we're going to obviously do a deep dive here in into the CRE world. A lot going on there, and a lot to contemplate. Uh, 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 both in terms of what it means for the CRE market, but what it means for the broader macro economy. Uh, but uh, before we do that, we do need to talk about what's going on in markets. Uh, and uh, oh, I wanted to tell you the story though, because uh, yeah. actually, I'm, I'm somewhat proud of this. Uh, uh, do you I still have it framed? Do you have it framed? Because I know I what story you're going to tell. It, it, probably in that office, I don't really use. <laughs> so okay, it may be there. <laughs> so I. I was in Fortune Magazine as one of the sexiest economists in the world. I'm not kidding. And, you know, this is like 30 years ago. Uh, that is a pretty low bar. <laughs> yes. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. That's what I said. I go, really? Uh, 
And uh, I remember there's, I can't remember who, who they had like three or four or five economists. So uh, that, that's when I had, that's when I had some muscle mass, uh, Victor. You, you should know, be back. proud of that. Two words that don't ever go together. Sexy and economist. So. That was so funny. That is so funny. Anyway, uh, that's my claim to fame. Um, let's talk about the markets. Uh, and Chris, you want to give us a sense of things? I mean, what, what, what markets are doing, why, and what, what potentially the implications are? Uh, I believe the term you used uh, earlier was markets are losing their mind. And I think you, <laughs> that's a, a pretty apt. Hair on uh, fire. Hair on fire, right? So all over the place, it seems as though um, investors are selling assets, right? So they're the, the stock market is down, S&P 500, Dow Jones, take your pick. They're all, they're all down. Uh, bond yields are up, right? So people are selling off their, um, their bond assets as well. They're, requiring a higher yield. Uh, so there's a, a generally a general risk off uh, approach here. Uh, fear all around of, of recession. The most obvious trigger, of course, is the, um, the Fed statement earlier this week. Fed action of 75 basis points. A hike was well known, well communicated. So I don't think that was the reason why uh, folks are... Um, Taking on this this attitude, it's more the statements and the dot plots that uh, that Ryan will, will certainly get into, indicating that the Fed certainly is has a more pessimistic outlook here, suggesting that rates will be higher for longer, um, making that very concrete. I think if you've been paying attention, you've noticed that Paul has been very hawkish, but now he's really trying to send that message over. Uh, over the um, the banister to, to everyone in the marketplace. And I think finally folks are, are taking the message uh, to heart. You also have geopolitical risk, of course, with uh, Russia-Ukraine still uh, percolating, escalating uh, perhaps as well with the um, call-up of Russian reserves. Um, so lots of things to be fearful of uh, all the way around. So I think that's what's, what's going on in the marketplace today. Yeah, Janice, you're... Uh... Your, I, your, what is your official title at CW? Um, uh, Executive Managing Director, Capital Markets. Capital Markets. And so you, you're looking at the CRE market, the commercial real estate market, through the prism of capital markets, you know, debt and equity capital that, that uh, drives investment in C, CRE all over the world. You're, in fact, we've been trying to get you on this podcast for a long time, but you know, every time we think we've got you nailed down, you're in some other part of the world, which we'll come back to. But uh is the capital markets, uh, CRE capital markets, as uh, uh, in, in turmoil as uh, every every other market uh, appears to be? Uh, you know, it, it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I felt a lot better, frankly, before Chris went through that litany of things yeah. going on today. Um, but, you know, I think what we're seeing in the commercial real estate markets is the fundamentals are actually pretty decent. Um, but because of what's going on in interest rates, and if you're a borrower and most people who buy commercial real estate are levering, you know, not only are your LTVs are down, but, you know, based on everything else, Chris is talking about, you know, your borrowing costs are up a couple hundred bips. And as a result, you know, people have kind of pushed to the sidelines. I mean, August trades are down 40% yeah. year over year. And that's after a great first half of the year, because people are just trying to absorb what's going on and then figure mm -hmm. out what they want to do right now. Um, so there's definitely been, you know, kind of a dislocation of the market. Um, but what's happening, unlike where you always get trades in the stock market or in the bond market, 
you're getting a bid ask spread. You're getting a 10 to 20% bid ask spread where some of the sellers are going, you know what, I'm going to wait it out and, and see what happens. So yep. more than anything, there's a lack of transparency, which is funny because when you read the reports, someone will say, oh, cap rates are down. And you're like, what? You know, Because it's just the transactions haven't necessarily cleared the market um, in that specific property type or location. But everyone is feeling the pinch of higher borrowing costs. So let me just translate that a little bit. Uh, to the to the listener, so uh, my translation of you know some of what you said is the market is the 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 capital flowing into the commercial real estate market is uh, gone to the sidelines. The investors have gone to the sidelines because of this uh, broader turmoil in markets. The Fed tightening, the run up in interest rates, both short and long term interest rates, uh, and uh, you're not actually seeing that yet in terms of prices paid for real estate because uh, in a real estate market you, you might not get a transaction you know the seller still thinking oh well the price is what it was a few months ago before this mess started the buyer says no way you know it's a lower price so you have this big what you call bid ask spread is just they, there's no meeting of the minds here so no one's signing on the dotted line so until that happens we don't we don't get real clarity with regard to where prices are in the, in the commercial real estate market. Very different than a, a stock market or a bond market where you know it's transacting all the time. It's a very liquid market and you get price discovery very quickly. You don't see that in the CRE market. Did I, did I get that roughly right? Yeah, I'd like to take you to investor meetings. Oh, there you go, okay. I got, a, I, got a, I got a job. I got a job. real English. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. So let's, it all, Ryan, goes back to, it feels like, uh, the Fed, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, maybe you can give us a sense of of your interpretation of the the Fed meeting that happened this past week, and what it what they're saying to us, what the Fed's saying to us, uh, and then I then I want to go next to long term interest rates because there that's been pretty dramatic in the last few days, and I want to talk about that a little bit. And that obviously matters a lot for pricing all assets, in, mm -hmm. including you know office buildings and other commercial real estate. So so, what's your take on the Fed meeting? So all the turmoil in financial markets started after the Fed meeting. And the takeaway from uh, the September meeting, you know, as you as Chris alluded to, like the increase in the target Fed fund rate by 75 basis points wasn't surprising. They barely tweaked the the statement, so nothing surprising there. It right. was the summary of economic projections where the Fed submits, you know, each participant submits their forecast for GDP, unemployment, inflation, and policy rate. So the so-called dot plot. And that was a significant increase between uh, in the last time they updated, which I think was in June. So they're now signaling, you know, the the terminal Fed funds rate where it's going to peak this cycle, where they're going to most likely stop tightening, is four point six percent. That's much higher than what the market was anticipating. They were thinking, you know, four percent. It's almost a, more than a full percentage point higher than what's in our September baseline. So the Fed is just basically the takeaway. And if reading between the the lines and the tea leaves, is they'll they'll stomach a recession if it brings inflation down. And that's the general takeaway. If you look at their forecasts, you know, if the unemployment rate increases by 60 basis points between this year and next year, and as Chris has pointed out, that's always coincided with a recession. So basically the Fed is signaling, they we're likely gonna go into a recession and that's a really affecting market sentiment. 
Yeah. So <clears throat> I, 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 that all makes sense. I mean, likely, or I mean, it feels like it's like right on the line. Uh, yeah, we're on the, we'll, we're, yeah, we're going to flirt with one. We're going to flirt it's with one. It's going to be uncomfortable. Session. And that's what yeah. the Fed, that's what Powell's been saying. He's like, this is yeah. going to cause pain. Right. They're going to, if inflation doesn't come down, there's going to be, they're going to inflict more pain. They are laser focused on bringing inflation down at any cost. Right. And so you, what's happening now is that stock investors are digesting that recession now or really a really tough economy is much more likely. The Fed's going to live with that and uh, and uh, to get inflation in. And therefore, we're seeing all this red on our screens right now. Yeah, basically what the market is saying is that there's still a path to a soft landing. And a soft landing is when the Fed brings inflation back down to target. Uh, we avoid a recession. So that's kind of like the best case scenario. That path uh, is narrow and getting narrower and narrower after each FOMC meeting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I will point out that with even right now, I'm looking at the decline in the market. I think we're down a couple percentage points from where we were yesterday. We're still only down 20 only, but we're down 22% from the all-time high that was sit, hit back at the beginning of the year. And that that's kind of also sort of consistent with recession, but not quite, right? It's kind of like right on the line. Because if it were a recession, we'd probably be down closer to 30%. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Your favorite indicator, the Yoker, the difference between the 10-year and the two-year, yeah. uh, is among the uh, most inverted since Volcker. So yeah. that's, and it's been inverted for a long time. And so yeah. if you're a Yoker believer, you know, that's pretty much sending a very strong signal that the bond yeah, market- that, That's least, why I've been more focused, as you know, Ryan. You're shifting, on, moving the goalpost here. On the other yield curve, the 10-year versus the Fed mm -hmm. funds rate, the policy yield curve, which has not inverted. It and, has not. And this gets to my next question to you, and it goes back to cap rates and you know pricing uh, in the real estate market. The 10-year yield, have you noticed what, what's been going on there in the last couple of days on the 10-year? It's going, it's going straight up. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm looking Amazing. at it now, it's at 3.7%, right? So, so if you decompose it into the three components, which is inflation expectations, long, long, long run inflation expectations, they haven't budged. It's the expected path of the real Fed funds rate. That's that adjustment occurred after the FOMC meeting when they signaled, you know, the, basically the bond market's taking the Fed at its word and saying that the terminal rate's going to be 4.6, if not higher, because there's five or six Fed officials uh, that were saying that their dots are even higher than 4.6. So you know, some have been arguing we might have to get up to five. So it's really, I think the market's trying to assess where's the ceiling on the Fed funds rate this cycle. You know, one other thing I'll throw in the mix, <clears throat> I was just talking to a really good bond trader. He pointed out that uh, the Japanese, uh, you know, they, they're intervening in markets, right? Mm -hmm. You saw that, right? They're trying to defend Yesterday. the yen because the value of the yen is falling through the floor here, which I find a little bit perplexing why they feel that's a big deal, you know, given they've, been trying to get inflation up anyway, but regardless, uh, and that that means that the the Japanese are you know selling treasury, buying yen in that effort, and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing uh, what what we're seeing in in the long uh, in the uh, in the long term uh, bond market. I thought that was yeah, I mean that most likely is going to show up in the term premium. Yeah, which is another the component of the ten year. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Victor. I mean, this week there's a lot of central banks made decisions. The Bank of England. Uh, a number of central banks in Asia, and everyone's being pretty aggressive, but interest rate differentials or real interest rate differentials 
are strongly in favor of the, the US. And that's why the dollar is not just against the yen, it's against almost everything. It's just appreciating very, very quickly. Right. Hey, Victor, you must watch the bond market here pretty carefully because going back to cap rates and valuation pricing in the CRE market, do you have a take on what's driving this? I mean, obviously the Fed's on the warpath and that's contributing, but it feels like long-term rates are rising faster than you would have expected even given that. But uh, is that your interpretation? Do you have some view on what's going on there? I mean, I agree with everything that's been said so far about the underlying drivers, but if we bring it back to how that might map out into our cap rates and our cap rate projections for commercial real estate is that I do think that Janice, keep me honest here, January and February, we were still kind of hopeful that though we were anticipating interest rate increases from the part of the Fed, that cap rates would at least absorb it from a spread point of view, as long as 10-year treasuries did not rise as quickly as they ended up doing. So there was, I know there are some property types and some geographic markets where cap rates have trended very, very low, just pretty much correlated with where interest rates were going, but there was still a little bit of a spread. But now, as it turns out, if we're using the 10-year treasury as your risk-free rate for a lot of 10-year hold periods for assets like multifamily and office, where you're looking at very, very little spread and got a lot of asset classes that have been trading at 4 or 5% caps or below where there's nothing. And now that upward pressure in cap rates will really likely result in an interesting situation between buyers and sellers. There they go. Yep. Janice, what do you think? Yeah, but but I mean, but you hit the nail on the head there. The, the issue really is, you know, with all this volatility, the people who aren't trading this bid ask spread, it's not that all of them are in denial, right? Like a lot of them are thinking, hey, the Fed's going to get inflation under control and then things are going to restabilize, you know, the curve's inverted. So, you know, maybe like long term rates will be lower. So they're just saying, I will either buy cash and finance it later, right? Or I will hold on because I don't want to mark to market, you know, at a very high borrowing cost. So maybe I'll wait a year, maybe I'll wait two years, you know, you know, kind of. So that bid ask spread isn't necessarily like, no, I can't hear you. I know rates are higher. I refuse to acknowledge it. It's, you know, what's the best thing for my portfolio? And maybe it's just, you know, buckle up and wait a bit. Yeah. And that, I think I think that is part of what complicates this particular asset class, right? It's an income generating asset class. And as Janice noted, you know, for multifamily warehouse distribution, sure, office kind of on the ropes along with retail, but for multifamily and warehouse distribution, they haven't gotten the memo that there's all this volatility. You've got a good amount of rent growth, decent occupancy. I do know that there are uh, some kind of headwinds in the horizon. Amazon's out there basically saying they're going to lease a bunch of their warehouse. I'm not saying everything's peachy, but by and large, at least through the second quarter, and we're processing third quarter data soon, rents and vacancies are holding steady. We'll come back to that. And yep. just uh, one other sidebar to get the listener to call it, catch up if they aren't following along. We're, we're throwing around the word cap rate. Yeah. You know, capitalization rate that's short for capitalization rate and that's simply a discount rate so just think about the price of the, the real estate it, that's equal to the stream of rents that are produced by that real real estate that's what victor's calling uh the income stream and then you just divide by the discount rate so you know if cap rates are low and falling all those being equal you know with that rent stream that means prices are going higher you know that kind of thing so lower cap rates synonymous with higher prices relative to to rent growth. 
Um, I, there's a couple other things I wanted to explore before we move on uh, more in depth into the CRE market. And I'll turn back to you, Chris, is around mortgage rates. And, you know, we've been having this discussion around uh, mortgage rates. Now I'm talking about not commercial mortgage rates, residential mortgage rates for a single family home. And last I looked, and I didn't look today, I'm kind of scared to look, to tell you the truth. But, I'll look it up for you. Oh, please don't. It's, I think it was 6.4%, or I think that's what I, I, I saw yesterday. Low, of course, was the low point, the record low back a little over a year ago was 2.6, 2.65. So they've come up a lot. But the mortgage rate, that 6.4, has risen uh, even more than the uh, long-term Treasury yields, the 10 years up a lot. We just talked about that, but even mortgage rates are up more than, even more than that, which obviously is doing a lot of damage to the single family market, I guess, to some degree to the benefit of the multifamily market. But Chris, do you want to explain what's going on there? Why is that uh, mortgage rates going up so much more than uh, at least historical norms compared to uh, like a 10 year Treasury yield uh, than has been the case historically? Yeah, it's a bit, I just looked it up here. Google says 7%. So it's, well, you're looking at the wrong one, man. That, <laughs> I look at mortgage uh, news. Is it, is it mortgage news? That I think this, uh, we should look. I'll look, I'll look it up while you anyway, tell me what's it's, going it's, on. It's going I'll north here. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's rising. And I think it's endemic of the, um, you know, there are several components here. One is just the volatility in the market today, right? So rates themselves, if you look at MBS or mortgage-backed securities, right? At the end of the day, the price is set by supply and demand factors. So if the rate's going up, it means that you have uh, more limited uh, uh, demand out there relative to a, a certain level of, of supply, right? So I think that's, that's a, a fundamental reason. But then why is that the case? Well, you have issues around the, um, the prepayment option that uh, mortgage... Uh, uh, borrowers have when they when they borrow money and at these higher levels perhaps there's a higher chance of uh, of prepayment in the future so the uh, MBS investor has to account for that you have that volatility I mentioned right so clearly in these times of um, extreme movements it's you know, the uh, the investors also have to account for that in, b- in bidding up the spread so I, I think those are the the main components that we have here. And it's just uh, a weird time in terms of the yield curve inversion. A lot of the models you know, are going to produce results that um, uh, require or suggest that we need higher yield uh, in order to make the, the math work here. So I, I attribute this excess spread that we're seeing between the uh, MBS or between the um, mortgage rate that borrowers are paying and the uh, 10-year treasury uh, do these really alert this these uh, these movements in in the uh, in the markets themselves? These dislocations in the markets. Mm-hmm. Yes, I looked uh, the, the the where I go. My go to for mortgage rates, real time mortgage rates, is Mortgage News Daily. It's a website, and they I, in, everything has a blemish to it. But I mean, I think yeah. the, the, this is a pretty good place to go. Six point six two as of today, right? As of a minute ago, six point six six two percent. Um, headed towards seven. Yeah, headed towards seven, right. <laughs> uh, and of course, hard to argue with Google. Uh, I, the, the one thing that makes me a little nervous about the mortgage rate and this argument that it's based on volatility in interest rates, which yeah. uh, I think you did a pretty good job of explaining it. No, no reason to go down that path again, because 
I'm not going to explain it any better. It's very complicated, but uh, in in a, in a bond, bond market world, it doesn't feel like that's going to go away. That volatility and that those high mortgage rates until the Fed's no longer on the warpath here. As long as the Fed's on the warpath, and there's a lot of uncertainty with where with regard to where that ends, you know, how high are they going to push short-term interest rates, and how long are they going to keep them there? That the volatility is going to remain in the market as long as that volatility remains in the market. Mortgage rates are going to remain very high. Would Would you agree with that? I would. And then if you yeah. throw in the mix, the, the quantitative tightening, right, yep. with the Fed mm-hmm. not purchasing yep. uh, mortgage-backed securities anymore, right? That's at least one source of demand that's that's no longer there, right? Uh, even if they're not selling actively, it's they're not supporting that uh, that market either. So um, yep. there are a okay. number of things like probably we'd see the spreads widening out even without this latest bout of volatility. This is just an accelerator. Yeah. Well, well it feels like with the same- increase, the Fed doesn't opt to sell MBS. No, they won't. They were just, no, I can't I imagine that. I, yeah. Mortgage they were talking about it. No, but well, Powell never was pretty never, explicit. Right? <laughs> I thought it was pretty explicit at the, in, in the press conference after the meeting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think now it's yeah. less likely. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's great for the multifamily market. I mean, yeah. even before the rate hike, um, when we look at, we cover 50 markets and then we do a comparison between is it cheaper to rent or is it cheaper to own? And before the rate increases started, it was cheaper um, to rent in, you know, 20% of the markets. And then when rates started to go up, it became cheaper to rent in 66% of the markets, right? And with this, you're just pushing that number up, which is, you know, kind of actually very good for the fundamentals of the multifamily investment market. Which is saying a lot, given how strong rent growth has been, right? I mean, geez, Louise. Um, we're going to lose Ryan in not not too long from now. So before we lose him, two things. One, a question to you, and then I want to play the statistics game, and then we're going to dive into CRE in more detail. Uh, financial conditions. So uh, the link between what the Federal Reserve is doing with regard to interest rates and the uh, impact on the economy runs through financial markets and fin- the financial system more broadly. We talked about stock prices. We talked about long-term interest rates. We, I think we alluded to the value of the dollar. It's very strong. Uh, credit spreads in the bond market. Do, do, w- given, where, given the sell-off in markets, which represents a tightening in financial conditions, meaning it's going to weigh on the economy more significantly, do you think markets are now where they need to be to slow the economy sufficiently to bring inflation in, or is there more to go here in, in terms of the tightening that needs to occur? I think there's a little bit more to go. Not too much, just a, just a little bit. And there, it affects the economy with a lag. So the tightening that we're experiencing today may not necessarily affect the economy until you know sometime next year. Uh, but past tightening, I mean, there's been a lot of tightening financial market conditions. It's going to weigh on the economy in the first half of, of next year. And that's what the Fed wants. They want the economy to be growing below its potential, you know, roughly 2%, 2.5%. So they want GDP growth persistently below that threshold to cool off the labor market, take some heat off wage pressures, and then by extension, that should help bring down some of uh, the inflation that we're experiencing. Okay. All right. Uh, let's play the game. Um, the statistics game, uh, we each uh, provide a statistic. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through questions and clues, deductive reasoning. The best statistic is one where it's not so easy we get it. You know, slam dunk, uh, not too hard that we never get it. Although that's pretty 
tough to do. If you can thread that needle, you're you're really good at this game. Uh, and if if it's relevant to the topic at hand, uh, that that's even better. Or relevant to a uh, goes to a relevant statistic, uh, you know, something out there in the in recent environment. Uh, I'm going to go easy on the guests for, at first. I'm, I, well, I'm, I'll turn to you and see if you want to play. But just so you see how the game is done, uh, I'll, I'll go to uh, I'll go to Ryan first. Uh, Ryan, you want to go first? All right, I got two for you, and they're related. Three hundred fifty-five thousand annualized. And fifty-five percent. Three hundred and fifty-five thousand. I want to say job growth for the month of August, but it was three hundred and fifteen thousand. So it's not job growth. This is job related. It is not job related. Some okay. construction number. We are getting closer. Permits are getting warmer. Uh, uh, three hundred fifty-five. Besides permits, what else is there? Complaints. Starts. There starts. Okay, three hundred fifty-five thousand. But you guys are you're getting close. That's not season. Well, you said annualized three hundred fifty five thousand. Mm-hmm. Was oh, that permits for multifamily? No, it's not permits. No, starts for multifamily. Is that okay. right? It but was that. Oh, okay. Gotta go deeper. Gotta go a little deeper. This is the highest since nineteen eighty five. Oh, this is uh four plus or five plus units or something. Or five plus. plus. No. Okay. Mark, what's our bread and butter? Bread and butter. Uh, regional. Oh, regional. Oh. <laughs> You're right. I'll, I'll, here you go. Get it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, well, so what uh, region okay. is it? The west, south, no. northeast, south. midwest. <laughs> There's only four, so we'll get there. <laughs> it's multifamily starts in the south. It's the most in, since 1985, and they oh. count for... 55% of all multifamily starts, which is roughly, they're usually between 50 and 60%. But you know, that, that's a lot of starts, multifamily starts in the South. Yeah. We, we, your point being, we're getting a lot of multifamily construction. Yes. Yeah. So overall, housing starts unexpectedly increased in August. And it was mostly because of it's multifamily and multifamily. It was all multifamily. Yep. Yeah. And the rent growth, right? It was 12% rent growth last year. Yeah. I mean, even with all that construction, we still have like pretty close to record low vacancy, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and and as you point out, rent growth is double digit. So you could argue we need even more multifamily. I would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the chain of causality may well be strong rent growth, low vacancies, developers responding, just like that Kevin Costner movie, right? If you build it, they're going to come because low vacancies and high rent growth. Yeah, that one you was lost that Mark movie? on that one. He no, has no, no, no idea. No, no, no. That's one of my favorite movies, The Natural. No, no, that's the Field of Dream. Field of Dream. Ryan's right. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I'm I just not part of the pulp, uh, the uh, uh, pop culture. But I like that movie. I like The Natural better than I like Field Natural of the Dreams. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? That's a good movie. Uh, except when he starts bleeding at the end. I, you know, remember. It? Showed mm-hmm. through his suit. But he hits, a, he hits the home run. Yeah, I know, but it made no sense that the internal bleeding would be. Anyway, uh, we're, we're getting off track. Uh, but that was a good statistic. That was a really good one, um, even though no cowbells with that one. Um, oh, and I should say, guys, if you show yourself uh, admirably here and get, get the, if you get the statistic, you get a cowbell. Well, we've, we've got cowbells. Yep, absolutely. They're, they're pretty cool. All right, uh, Victor, you want to play? 
Are, sure, absolutely. Okay. Are you far away. I have a number for you. 102.3%. The first time this number crossed 100% since COVID, the COVID pandemic began. Uh, TSA uh, Traffic Labor Day. That's exactly right. Oh, September oh my 3. gosh. I deserve a cowbell. That <laughs> is definitely a cowbell. That's awesome. That is exactly huge. Right. Oh my so gosh. Oh, there was no hesitation. A, there was not even a hesitation. None. Uh, it was big, right? I mean, Janice, we were big. all agog about okay. this. And yeah. Collusion. I feel collusion. Yeah, that's, that's, close to, that's, that's an investigation. <laughs> I was just guys, going through all of the, you know, kind of the habits that we've returned to post pandemic right. versus kind of like what's happening in the office market. And that was one of the metrics I was looking at. So cool. That is one. So, so we're back above T, people who go through TSA. The number of people who go through TSA pre-check yeah. are, uh, is now higher, a bit higher than it was at this point in the year. Uh, well, that, that, the well, that was the number for September three. Now yeah, it was okay. Labor Day. Yeah. It oh, Labor Day. And yep. we're still at around 98, 97% after that, okay. which you know what? I'll take it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's right. been going up and down because of all the variants and, but it was the first time we crossed a hundred percent. That is and, really yeah. cool. And it's consistent with, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of also restaurant activity and, and everything. Mm -hmm. All of these things are now above pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. Yeah. We're back. Yeah. We're back. You're back. We got to talk about remote work, which we'll come, we'll definitely come back to because I, I don't think we're quite back there yet, but you're saying, what about business travel? Is that back? Is that, is that one is yeah, that mean that's a, they, the TSA doesn't really disaggregate that? And no, your sense yeah. is, is that mostly tourism is stronger yeah, than I, it I was? And, it's mostly leisure travel. Janice, leisure. you tell me, I know we were getting less yeah. conferences canceled now as opposed to last January. I remember one of my guys went to the Crefsey conference in Miami in January, and I told him it was a small miracle that only three of them got COVID. Uh, back then, like conferences were still being canceled. Now, not so much, right? Everybody's pushing through with it. Yeah. There are protocols, but yeah, yeah, now there is more business travel. I mean, I'm on the board of AFIR, Association of Foreign Investors in Real Estate, and we had our largest conference since pre-COVID. But I think it's really individual. Like I called you know, people I work with and you know, investors, brokers. In August, I got international ringtones like every time I called someone in August, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's revenge travel. It's uh, lots of people vacationing. The Euro looks great. Yep. Yeah, it makes sense. So the, okay. the Moody's Back to Normal Index, though, is not back to one. I think it's no. a 91. Yeah. Brian, well, do you have a sense of why? Is it the mobility piece? I think it's they're the not back to the office. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. We, we construct this index uh, called the back to normal index is a compilation of a lot of different statistics. Some of which you, you, you TSA pre-check, uh, restaurant bookings, uh, uh, box office, that kind of thing in economic statistics. And it's still sitting 90, 95% of normal yeah. 91, right? It's uh -huh. 91. I think it's three things, Chris. One, it, we have our own business survey, business, uh, confidence ah. survey. Oh, that's yep. a good point. And that has been weak. Uh, yes. You know, stabilized recently, but it's it's weak. Second thing is we use G Ryan's GDP tracker. So what is our estimate of GDP growth in the current quarter? And GDP has been weak. It fell in the first half of the year. So that's you know also contributing it. There's a third reason. Um, oh, mobility. The mobility. The yeah, mobility. mobility. Yeah. Yeah. The mobility. That that's weird. It really 
That's the Google mobility. They track uh, people's moves based on cell phone movements, and they break that down into uh, that related to office or retail or transit stations, all kinds of different breakouts. And you know, some some of the mobility has recovered, but a lot of it hasn't. It's still well mm-hmm. below pre-bend. So it's really odd. In that yeah, respect. I think public transit is still well, way down. Right? Yeah, public transit is way down. Office is down, still way but, down. Uh, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Right. Um, you want to take, uh, Janice, did you want to go? Do you want to, sure. yeah, sure. fire away. What the heck? Um, okay. So 120% of pre-COVID levels. Uh, okay. Is it uh, open table? No, but that, that's, it's, it's, uh, it's a little north of a hundred, but it's, it's not open table. It's more specifically real estate. I'm um, more specifically real estate. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, Hotel ADRs. No, that's interesting. Um, Traffic (laughs) through Times Square. (laughs) Uh, It has to do with investors. Oh, investors. Uh, And it's a positive thing that it's 120%. It's a positive thing. It's a positive thing. Um, And is it uh, investors, global investors and commercial real estate? Uh, Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, it, it could be something like the amount of, or, I, I hesitate to say it cause it doesn't feel like it's right, but something like the um, dollar amount invested in U S commercial real estate. So you're getting close. So okay. it is about the dollar amount and investing in commercial real estate, but it's not, has been in, invested. That has, oh. that has been invested. It, it's not, I, has been. It's, I'm sorry. It's oh, been dry powder. or it's in a fund. Dry powder. Oh, dry, dry powder. powder. Oh, so, oh see. so even though we said that transactions were kind of down 40% in August, right. um, the dry powder number is 120% of pre-COVID levels, Got which it. shows an intre- incredible amount of capital on the sidelines, kind of waiting for this to sort itself out. Okay. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Perfect sense. So you're saying as soon as things look like the, the Fed's over, the coast is clear, we're on the other side of whatever it is we're in the middle of, there's a lot of money on the sidelines that could come in pretty quickly here. Yeah. Another reason why sellers don't want to sell, probably. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. They're saying, oh, I'm just going to wait for that pot of money to come in at some point. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do one more. Chris, you're up. Yep. 873000 uh, that's completions. No, that's the that's the number of homes in the pipeline, right? To go into completion. What kind of homes? Oh, multifamily homes. Not started. Multi. There you go. Good job. That's, that's multi. Yeah. Yep. That's Very multi. good. Eight hundred seventy thousand are under yeah. construction. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's up. But the single family, I think, homes in the pipeline going to completion is actually starting to come off here pretty quickly. I think that's right. Yeah. But eight hundred seventy-three thousand is a, that's a lot. Is a record high since nineteen seventy-three. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a lot that could come online and help fulfill some of this, uh, this deficit that, that Victor mentioned. So. Yeah. I guess one benefit of people losing their jobs in single family construction sites is they can walk across the street and go work for a multifamily developer mm-hmm. and get some of those homes yep. completed. Yep. Yeah. Although the permits are down, right? So. True. Yep. All right. I mean, well, that was good. I, I, you don't have one, right? Yeah, do you want mine? I mean, of course we want yours. Really? Yeah. You really want mine? Okay, hold on one second. 
No, he's got to look one I up. I got to check. I got to check what it is right now. Copper prices. Yeah, I was about to say it. No, it's not copper prices. How $435. 1.09. <laughs> One point zero nine, and you so see. That the dollar? I gave you a big hint. Oh, you I gave you a big dollar. Hint. It's the dollar against the euro. You got it. You got the pound. It's the pound. Or the pound. Okay. Yeah, there's one pound, British pound, buys one dollar in actually at this point, eight point eight cents. One point zero eight eight. That's has anyone I've lived in a that. time when. The pound I don't dollar remember that at close all. to parity. Yeah. I, I yeah, can't remember. In the like 82, 82. Well, did it get that when, they, when the pound I, I think crashed? It was, like, it was just about pound parity. Right. <clears throat> yeah. That's when Soros made all his money, I think, on that crash, you know, in the pound. That just, you know, and that obviously goes to the fact that while the US, our economy is struggling, the European economy and specifically the UK economy is in. Uh, real is really really struggling. I mean, mm -hmm. the recession seems very likely there at some point. And of course, they just got a new prime minister who uh, passed a, uh, a piece of legislation, or is in the process, I guess, of passing the legislation to cap the energy costs for households uh, because they've been going skyward because Europe relies very heavily on Russian energy, and that's been cut off to a large degree and caused prices to go north. So in, very understandable, right? Because low-income households are just getting completely hammered. But the complication of that is it's kind of fueling the inflation fire, right? And it, potentially exacerbating uh, the inflation, making it more entrenched and raising the odds that they're going to get, the British are going to get in some kind of stagflation scenario with high, mm -hmm. persistently high inflation and ultimately a, you know, a very weak economy. So- that's why investors, I think, in the foreign exchange markets are really uh, having a, pro a lot of difficulty with this anyway. But the dollar's up against all the currencies. I mentioned the yen. It's, it's actually beyond parity against the euro. It's uh, 0.969 against the euro. So the dollar is now stronger than the euro. Uh, and you know, against all currencies, it's, it's up uh, quite strongly. Against the Canadian dollar, the Aussie dollar, it's about 70 cents. So very, very significant. Okay, let's um, let's turn to uh, more specifically to the uh, commercial real estate market. And Ryan just signed off. I think he has some uh, child responsibilities. Uh, and uh, let's talk. Uh, maybe we can talk about the multifamily market first, uh, because I think, and I guess to some degree, the industrial market. Those are the markets where I guess the fundamentals are better, and I and I guess investors are still engaged. Would that be fair to say? Uh, uh, Janice, is that reasonable statement? Yeah, I mean, so the basic issue with the multifamily market, um, unlike with industrial or office, is you get to reset your rents every year, right? So to the extent that people are worried about inflation, you know, um, and even if cap rates are going up, if you can reset your income and if your income is in some sense indexed to inflation, it protects you against what's happening with borrowing rates, et cetera. Um, I would say that that is in general, and it's kind of really favored um, the multifamily market. But it also, you know, it doesn't really reflect, I think, what's happening socially. And what we had during COVID is, you know, a big social backlash against, you know, kind of um, the discrepancy between rich and poor and, and all of these kind of social issues. So we have started to see rent control, you know, kind of support um, across a number of markets. And we don't know how it's all going to work out. 
Um, so while you do have kind of today the ability to index your income up as inflation goes up, there are emerging, um, you know, kind of pressures, um, you know, to kind of cap in some sense. We said average rent growth was 12%, you know, last year. Um, and that's on average, you know, it's 20% in some markets. Um, so there is, you know, emerging pressure to say enough's enough. Let's, you know, kind of put a, a cap on individual rent growth in markets. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, just for historical context, before COVID came along, the big news in 2019 was that four states were enacting some form of rent regulation. I remember a candidate in New York State running off of a platform saying the rent's just too dang high, right? So it's always been affordability, I think, has always been and will continue to be an issue. I think from an income point of view for multifamily investors, been a great year. Janice, we have effective rent growth of 12.7% in 2021, a record quarter in the third quarter. Very impressive. Yeah. But to your point, these are the headwinds where there yeah. are backlashes where we go, you know what, this year, we're maybe at a five and a half percent year to date, middle half, we're probably forecasting between six and a half and seven percent, suggesting that the latter half will encounter a bit more bumps in the road. Oh, you said we're going from double digit rent growth to about half that. Well, 12.7% or around 7 plus percent. That Those are our numbers. And with that said, I'm not crying a river for multifamily landlords if right. they can eke out the 7 plus percent rent growth for 2022, given how this year has progressed. Yeah. And I also think kind of the double digit rent growth in 2021 kind of um, doesn't reflect the fact that in 2020 it was frozen, right? So, right. you know, it really wasn't, you know, kind of 12% on top of 6%. It was like 12% on top of effectively zero. Yeah. In 2020, uh, we recorded some record drops in effective rents for oh, yeah, places New York. like San, yeah, San Francisco, so, Washington, D.C. had a record drop for the 40 years or so we've been tracking this data. So yeah, it's coming yeah. off of a bit of a low. But to your point, Janice, about the pushback here and the prospects of rent control, I was at a national multifamily housing council, I believe, uh, Conference. A couple of weeks ago, right, Mark? Yep. Yeah, and I, I were you there, Victor? I I, I might have missed. I, you I couldn't. I couldn't make it, but uh, Kim Bettencourt from Fannie Mae says hi. She missed dinner with you because uh, oh, she was yeah. a little bit I under the weather. Kim, I yeah, I, was, I missed her. Uh, but anyway, it was first thing I noticed was how packed it was. I mean, the the ballroom was overflowing, so business is good. Second thing is they had a, a group of uh, protesters outside, very vocal, <coughs> complaining, because yeah. these are landlords, right? Uh, big landlords, institutional uh, investors, and they're angry. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, they're, they can't pay their rent, especially if they have to pay a, a, a rent increase of 12.7%. For most people, that's just <laughs> like out of bounds. So and, and Mark, I, I'd love to like like make that concrete, right? We talk about changes, but Janice, you mentioned that in some markets and neighborhoods, that's 20 plus percent. I had our researchers sharpen their pencils when we were about to publish the Brooklyn submarket was going to pull the 25% rent growth in 2021. Wow. And how it translated to one of my staff members, she's left Moody since then. I'm not sure if it's causal, but her $3,000 one bedroom wasn't going to get a rent increase of $700 right? That's 23.3% in Brooklyn. It was real. Yeah. And I, you know what I think, Victor, I, I I don't know that I even introduced you guys appropriately. Did I, Chris? I, I think I just kept on going because I just feel so like we know each other so well. I never really introduced you. So we've been talking all this time. People might be saying, well, 
who are these guys? And, you know, although in the real estate world, you're very well known, but Victor is a part of Moody's Analytics in, in our uh, commercial real estate uh, group. And uh, uh, Janice is, a, did I mention Cushman Wakefield, one of the biggest, well, how would you describe Cushman Wakefield? Just massive real estate company. You're into yeah. it. Yeah, massive real estate services firm. So we do everything, you know, office, multifamily, industrial, (laughs) rent, sell. If it has something to do with real estate, we'll do it. Yeah. You're you got your fingers in all the pies and all over the world, as I mentioned earlier. You're all over the world all over the world. Uh so I apologize for that. I I just took it for granted because we're buddies, so I didn't even think about it. Um I do that to Chris all the time. I never did I even, I didn't, I'm sure I didn't even say you were the deputy chief economist. But I don't even okay. know if she said my name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at this point. Uh, okay. So can we go back to the rent a little bit? Cause for a macro economist, this is really important because rents drive the cost of housing, particularly as measured in the consumer price index. Uh, you know, the, the measure of inflation that we all look at it's a third of that index and it all goes back to rent. So if rents are rising very rapidly and 12.7% is like out of bounds rapid, that adds to housing costs, adds to the inflation picture. So it's really important uh, to getting inflation down and stopping the Fed from, and ending the Fed's rate hikes that we get rent growth rolling over, starting to slow here. So uh, Janice, do you, do you have a similar, do you have a view on, on rent growth in the multifamily market? I mean, are we... Have we passed the peak in 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 rent growth and starting? Yeah, to, I mean, so we definitely think you know we're not getting another twelve and a half, you know, twelve point seven percent year. I mean, there are a lot of starts, but you know, structurally, we've undersupplied the sector for like more than twenty years. So you know, kind of the pressures that we have are because you get to markets with three percent, you know, kind of vacancy rates, and we've undersupplied them. So. Um, we think with the amount of starts, and we focused a lot on starts uh, that we have coming online, it's going to take some of the pressure off, um, and that rent growth will kind of moderate and taper, um, which I think is a is a good thing. Yeah, and Victor, you said six percent. Did you give a date? I mean, you're, you're you're probably like those good forecasters that I know. You give a forecast without a date. I think yes. <laughs> 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 I don't think he gave me a date. Did, Chris, did he give me a date? I don't. I didn't think he, hear it. I didn't, I didn't hear, hear a date. <laughs> so six percent by when? Is that like by this time next we're, year? We're looking at six to seven percent expected for all of calendar year twenty twenty two. Yep. Twenty twenty two. Oh, this. Yes. Year. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Can I ask then, roughly speaking, what does twenty twenty three look like next year in terms of rank? Uh, around. We're looking at half that. There. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's very encouraging. So, well, there's there's that moderation, but I will let you know that given the data that we've tracked and how some clients have used it to predict shelter inflation, there is about a two to three quarter lag. And so what we're seeing hit the CPI numbers was Janice is probably the 12% that we recorded yeah. in 2021, yeah. right about yeah. now. And so hopefully relief is on the horizon, hopefully starting next quarter, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Okay. So you're saying calendar year 2022, we're going to be at six, 7%, which means we're ending the year on a pretty soft note compared to the start of the year. We came roaring into the year, double digit rank growth. We're leaving the year, feels like low, kind of low single digit growth to get to 
six, 7% for the calendar year. Yeah, the, the second half in particular, we are yeah. expecting a bit of a slowdown okay. and it could be reduced to the three factors, less of that in migration to former Zoom towns that yep. characterize pretty strong demand at that point, and then slower household formation and just the affordability issue that we've discussed. Which creates demand destruction. Households can't form and yeah, right. they can't they can't afford the they can't afford to buy a single family home. They can't afford the rent now, so they have to stay with their parents or double yeah. And it's, with- some, it's somewhat disingenuous to just go and say I'm all, I'm all, always optimistic because someone needs a place to live, but it also means you could go back to your parents' basement, which they yeah. preserved for you exactly when you were eight years old, right? Yeah. Hey, Janice, in terms of capital flows, is it still it, it, you said that the investors have gone to the sidelines. Does that also apply to the multifamily market? Are, are, uh, there's are still- much more demand for multifamily. Uh, multifamily and actually debt today because rates are higher. Um, there's a very kind of strong um, bid for that. It's seen, you know, kind of at this point in the cycle, you know, it's a little bit of a cushion against what might happen uh, with recession, especially kind of mid-market um, assets, senior workforce housing. Uh, but definitely... Uh, multifamily in general has bucked the trend, you know, and there is, it's probably, we used to call it beds and sheds, you know, anything with a bed and multifamily, anything with shed industrial. Now sheds are somewhat less in demand, but multifamily beds are still like the number one choice for investors. Got it. Got it. Okay. So it feels when you look at the spectrum of commercial real estate, multifamily feels like it's kind of the, at the top of the heap in terms of the fundamental conditions, vacancy, rank growth, prices, uh, capital flows, all those kinds of things. Would it be fair to say kind of at the bottom of the list is kind of office, the office market, particularly kind of the big office towers sitting in big urban centers, like where you are right now. You're in in New York, aren't you right now? I'm in New York. In your office in New York. Yeah. Um, You know, and I think you pegged that accurately. Um, the issue with office today is not only kind of the national vacancy rate, which is, you know, 17 plus percent. Um, it's also this reluctance of employees to go back full time to the office. Uh, so, you know, some employers are basically saying, you know, we know we want these guys back. Um, there are two job openings for every person looking for a job. So to, you know, kind of uh, push people back to the office doesn't seem, you know, you don't want to be too tough because you don't want to, you know, get a lot of rollover. You don't want the great resignation at your company. Right. Yeah. Um, so the office sector, I think people, you know, are thinking, wow, it looks like it might be a value investment, but we just, you know, we're not quite sure yet what's happening with workforce flexibility and work from home. So it has not been you know, it, it, the trades have been, um, you know, at a kind of a relatively low level. No one's uh, buying, the, no one's selling nothing. They're just, that bid-ask I mean, spread is very you know, wide. Yeah. It, the, the bid-ask spread is wide, unless you have something like you have, you're a hundred or 95% occupied or hundred percent occupied long-term credit tenants, you know, sure. You know, that looks pretty bulletproof. As long as you can get through the next couple of years, that looks pretty good. But, uh, anything with a large amount of vacancy or role, you know, people are just taking a little bit more of a wait and see attitude. I mean, I personally feel like, you know, there's some value investing to be had here, but it, it's quite a counter cyclical 
When you, you say know, value I'm, investing, oh. you mean prices are going to get to a place where there's real value, even yeah, at, below, significantly yeah. below replacement cost. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, but you right. have to, you know, y- you have to buck the trend for the next year and a half because vacancy rates, uh, even if everything, even if everyone comes back to the office, vacancy rates are still structurally quite high now. They are not out of line with what happened after the GFC or the dot com. Right. In, in terms of, you know, eight to nine quarters of negative absorption is completely consistent with what has happened. It just doesn't feel good when you're in it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's what's going on in office. Right. And also, I think the, the Janice's point about the uncertainty in the tight labor markets, it is true that in the near term, office is that asset class that has a crosshair target painted on its back. Right. If we encounter some kind of recession, I'm, I'm just going to bet there are going to be a bunch of CFOs bring a refrain like to manage our margins, we're going to let go of underutilized office space and reinvest to retain and reward our people. So let's see. Yeah, it's see, an easy target. See, that's very interesting because um, uh, you're saying, you know, kind of like that a recession is kind of bad for office. I think in a weird way, a recession gives employers more leverage to bring, bring people oh, back to the office. Interesting. And the reason I say that is because the productivity numbers early in COVID were sky high, right? I mean, people, you know, had to shelter in place. You couldn't go out. You couldn't hang with your friends. You couldn't go to restaurants. You couldn't go shopping. So productivity numbers were really high. But if you look at starting in 2022, the productivity numbers went below trend. And employers started to say, you know what? People in in all these polls, Cushman Wakefield does like a kajillion of these polls about are you engaged, you know, are you motivated? There's a 15% gap between if you're in the office three or more days a week, you are 15% more likely to be motivated and engaged. So even though you want the flexibility to work from home, if you take the temperature of how you feel, people who are in the office three plus days a week um, are more motivated and engaged. So I think employers would like to draw people back to the office it's just that individuals want the flexibility to work from home. And given the balance of power between employee and employer, they're giving flexibility right now. I mean, yeah, when I, that, that's in the near term. I do think there is yeah. a centrifugal, centripetal. I always confuse this, right? There is likely, I, I, I would claim that in the intermediate term, three to five years out, yeah. there will likely be a showdown when it comes to, well, you know what? We probably have proximity bias. And if you show up in the office more often than your peer, I wonder if you're going to get promoted faster. And is that going to pull people back to the office? Or is that going to be an HR issue? Because you know you want to play like you're the enlightened employer. You're saying it's going to be the same for hybrid and in office. And yet this person in office is advancing faster. Let's see. I, I actually think that conversation is starting to happen more on an ad hoc basis, meaning that in the beginning, um, you know, employers tried to lure people back to the office. They said, we're going to get you the best space. I mean, actually, brand new class A office space is at a 30% premium to the rest of the market today, and it was 20% pre-COVID. So people are placing more value on the best space. So they're saying come on in, let's lure you in. We're going to have really awesome space. It's going to be really collaborative. They were doing, you know, kind of food and fun. 
you know, we're going to have ice, ice creams, cream ice creams on a Tuesday afternoon, yeah, like, right? Like yeah, Tuesday yeah. tacos, come on in, you know, 15 minute massages at your desk. What? Um, but now, is that right? Are you making that up? No, 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 this is true. This is okay. not every company. Some companies did that yeah. for, for us. Did, did they do that? No, I didn't. No, I, I, I'm massages. thinking that'll run afoul of harassment <laughs> training and prevention. Right. <laughs> but you know, funny, but now I think it's moved to the point where everyone's looking at what's going to happen with recession. Conversations are starting to be had, you know, in a, in a kind of mentorship way saying, you know, People are looking at contingency plans, maybe contingency cuts. It might be good for you to be more visible. So this is exactly what you're talking about, Victor. You know, it, it's, you know, it's better for you kind of conceptually, right? Because people still have a little bit of an old mindset. I don't know that we've 100% accepted, you know, from an employer perspective, um, the flex work, the work from home. Um, if there are cuts, I think that if you're less visible, you know, you're a little bit more vulnerable. And I think those conversations are happening. I just want to point out there's this uh, growing, we talked about this last week on the podcast because we had Nick Bunker from Indeed. Was it? It's Indeed. I Indeed. Getting, yep. Indeed. For job posting. Uh, and he's a great economist. And, you know, he follows this remote work dynamic pretty carefully. And he made the point, and it's, I think he's right, there's this gap between what economists think about remote work, that it's productivity enhancing, and what CEOs and business people think would think is productivity destroying. Somebody is wrong. Uh, and so we'll we'll figure that out going forward. One thing, Janice, you did say in the con the chatter we had the before the podcast that in you travel a lot all over the world, that attitudes towards remote work are, are very different across the globe. Do you want to describe that? I thought I found that fascinating. Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. Um, in a lot of countries, they can't understand why the US isn't kind of 100% back. So, um, you know, I just got back from literally, you know, Singapore, Seoul, Tokyo, uh, Sao, Sao Paulo, Brazil, um, Santiago, Chile, and London, right? And I would say that the US is far behind all of those markets in terms of the return to office. And maybe Austin isn't as far behind because, you know, Austin is one of the markets where, you know, it's, it's um, on a Wednesday, maybe up towards 70%. But if you go to these markets, I mean, uh, South America is 100% back. You know, it's like nothing ever happened. Mm. Uh, the UK may be a little softer, but it's, it's mostly back. You know, you mm. look around a floor and, you know, most people will be there. Friday might be light. Uh, but, you know, in the U.S., our numbers are, are really hovering at half, you know, a little bit higher, a little bit lower, depending on where you are. And they're better after Labor Day. New York was up 9% after Labor Day, which shows a post-Labor Day push, um, but still all in, you know, and it shows in office occupancy, it shows in, if you look at, you know, kind of mass transit, you know, subway ridership, bus ridership, kind of around 60%. Um, we have been much slower to get back in the office and the the question among a lot of the international community is if it's gone on for this long, right? The longer it goes on, mm -hmm. the harder it is to revert to, sure. to mean, right? Um, but none of these other markets, I mean, in Tokyo, you'll have a meeting, everyone will be wearing a mask three feet from you and there'll be mm. a plexiglass screen, but they're in mm. the office. Hmm. Interesting. And I'm headed that way. I'll be in, in Tokyo in two weeks. I didn't realize I better take my mask with me. Lots of COVID tests, lots yeah, of PCR tests. Well, I, they, uh, apparently, the the uh, government just dropped the visa requirement for uh, visits. Oh, but good. Yeah. yeah, makes it a little easier. 
Um, well, I don't. I, at this point, we're running out of time, and I thought we could end the conversation uh, in this way because we are economists, and we are obviously recession is top of mind. From your prism, your perch, looking at the commercial real estate world uh, as you do, does that does it feel like a recession is coming? Or first of all, is or that a recession is there, and that secondly, a recession is coming? Uh, and maybe I'll throw in one other question while I'm at it. What is there something you would be looking at, or that you are looking at, to gauge whether it feels like we're going into recession or not uh, from the from a CRE perspective? I'll go to you first, Victor, uh, if you've got a perspective on that. I do think that from the income driver point of view, commercial real estate always lags the overall economy. It'll follow if and when employers start shedding jobs, in which case there will probably be pretty clear markers of recession, of a recession uh, incoming. But with that said, I think the general hope is that even if there's probable volatility on the pricing side, that if it is a relatively shallow recession, fingers crossed, that a lot of these income generating property types of stuff we talked about today will weather it just fine, but we will see. And so those are the things we kind of look for. We have, again, we are, I'd love to see the Q3 numbers for income drivers. I'll leave the rest to Janice when it comes to the capital markets and transaction volume and cap rate stuff. We're not seeing it just yet, Mark. But again, yeah, it, it's a lagging say, variable. And just so to make it clear, when you say income drivers, you mean like the rents and vacancies. Rents. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. This rent you're not seeing any sign yet of uh, well, aside stress. from the idiosyncratic stuff, where yeah, sure there are headwinds in industrial because we're buying less goods as we transition oh, the economy to spending yeah. more in services. That's why you've got like earnings warnings from Target, Amazon, and Walmart, but you've yeah. got airlines posting record earnings, and so there is that. And so Amazon's leasing a bunch of their warehouses; they're stopping construction. But there's that. Uh, but with that said, is it localized? Is it across asset classes and asset types? I, I, we haven't seen it just yet. Just what, yet. What about development? Have you noticed any projects that were kind of early stage and have just gone dormant or projects that are underway that are being slow walked? Are you, are you sensing any of that happening? We're seeing more of the difficulty in the construction financing side. I think just because you've got a lot of lenders also saying, look, do we want to pull back and reevaluate our LTV and our income assumptions? But with that said, we just cited that 873,000 multifamily properties are coming right. down the pike. I do think that if and when there's a downturn that comes, that's when causality comes where supply growth slows down, right? Right. Uh, that's when we, once you've got your shovels in the ground, sorry, that apartment building is going to open its doors, even if we run into a recession with lease of velocity slowing. And then we like pull back on future deliveries. What, what about you, uh, Janice, uh, from your perch, do you sense any weakening in kind of the environment, both from a real perspective, you know, vacancy absorption and from a capital markets perspective? It, yeah, so I, I agree with Victor that um, the fundamentals, you know, kind of in multifamily and industrial are kind of so strong that even when you get some headwinds, you know, with the kind of a uh, uh, relatively brief recession, you know, they're they're just headwinds. It's it's nothing catastrophic, right? I do think though that, and actually, um, Kevin Thorpe at Cushman Wake will just put out a paper on price adjustment. I think that the fundamentals are different from price adjustment. Because I think that your return on equity, you know, given 
um, the spike in debt rates mean that we're going to see upward cap rate movement, even with the fundamentals being pretty decent, right? Because it just, if most people lever, you know, 65 or 75% of acquisitions and now LTVs are down to 60, 65%, um, and your cost of borrowing is up north of 200 basis points, you just can't afford to pay as much for the assets, even if the fundamentals are pretty darn good. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think we're looking for, you know, kind of a hundred, you know, in office, you know, there's a paper that Cushman just published and it breaks it out by property type, but you know, it, you know, it's as much as a hundred basis points cap rate increase. Yeah, and then okay. what's interesting about that, Janice? Right, Mark, you alluded to this earlier. Because cap rates have gotten so low over time, that same hundred basis point increase will result in greater value de- destruction if you're going going up from four to five, as opposed to if you were starting up from seven to eight. Right, it's that denominator effect, and so it is concerning if and when it plays out. Yeah, and and the NOIs are moving too. Right, you know, because with inflation and everything, so you get a little bit of offset, but it, but isn't it is an issue? You know, values will be lower with the cost of debt where it is today. Yeah. Okay. So, but you know, if you're sitting trying to scan the horizon here for recession, you, you say, uh, you know, there's reasons to be nervous and worried given what's going on with interest rates and what it means for the cost of capital and what it means for the ultimately for the price of commercial real estate. From a kind of a fundamental perspective, you know, demand, vacancy, supply, not yet. You're not seeing anything really. No, yet. I mean, office is softer yeah. than the other property classes for everything that we talked about or yeah. return to the office. But, you know, you know, the fundamentals are actually quite good. You know, kind quite of, good. if you look at kind of past recessions and where we started with the fundamentals, they're pretty darn good today. So, you know, we can withstand some of these headwinds, not a problem. Good. Hey, Chris, I, I want to just turn it back to you for uh, any last words. I mean, you've been listening to this conversation. Anything strike you with regard to the conversation? Uh, no, I generally agree with everything that's that's been said here. I think um, just turning back to the multifamily construction numbers, right? I, th- I think consistent with what was described is, yeah, we do see this increase in number of properties that are under construction, but we've also seen a decline in actual completions recently, right? So that does suggest kind of that slow walking. Yeah, we're mm. you know we're we're building out, but maybe not as uh, as speedily as as we otherwise could. And then you also do see the pullback on permits, right? So that's also suggesting hey, some some mm. caution there, not really starting new projects at a very rapid pace in this environment. Right. Okay. So your sense is there actually, there are some signs that builders, developers are starting to grow more cautious here and maybe kind of reining it in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, still, I think still quite aggressive relative to history. If you go back a couple of years, right? Yeah. So there's still demand. They still sense the demand out there. Yeah. Yeah. The other question I have, I haven't really studied closely is the mix, if we're thinking about multifamily in terms of the luxury versus, or higher end of the market versus lower than the market, still, it looks like it's still targeting kind of the higher end. The higher end. Yeah, I, I'd say, Janice, right? 95% of new, the, the numbers just don't work because of the high construction exactly. costs. You don't bring in a class A property, yeah. right? Exactly. What you do for mid-market is you renovate the older stuff uh, because it, it's just too hard to build, right? 
um, without other without other kind of concessions or support or government support. It's too hard to build with the current cost of construction, um, you know, to mid-market. On stat for the mix, Class BC vacancies are at 3%. And as of the second quarter, rent growth for Class BC apartment properties actually outpaced those of Class A. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that in terms of the context of affordability and yeah. just overall tightness. Right. Okay. Well, we've covered a, a lot of ground, uh, and I, I think um, I think we need to call it a podcast. This is, uh, we could do this all day long, and maybe we'll ha- have you guys back if you're interested in three, six, nine months. You see if there's any more warning signs out there from your perspective on what's going on in CRE and what's going on, what it means for the broader economy. We might but all be if- back in the office. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I will you be? I, I'm, I'm not sure I'll be. Yeah, you're there. Yeah, I'm here. There. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. I, you can see my not elsewhere classified room back here. So, uh, and I, I just missed the laundry hip hugger. Uh, yeah, that's right. I try to clean it up a little bit for you, Victor. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, but I want to thank you guys uh, for taking the time uh, very for a very informative conversation. And with that, we are going to call this a podcast. Take care, everyone. 